Welcome to the Recappery, the History Chicks Media Recap Emporium. Hello and welcome to the Recappery. Today we are continuing our coverage of the Netflix series The Crown, covering the life of Queen Elizabeth II of England. This is Season 2, Episode 7, Matrimonium. The Netflix synopsis says, A letter from Peter Townsend spurs Margaret to make a bold proposal. Elizabeth has good news that causes complications for Margaret. And I tried as hard as I could to come up with a Queen Elizabeth-centric synopsis for this one. And in Uh fact, I don't even have one written down, but I simply want to say Princess Margaret makes poor decisions and goes off the rails. (laughs) That's good. Mine was a little bit longer. (laughs) The old age and the modern age are on a collision course as Margaret plans to marry again and Elizabeth messes with those plans again. Parents everywhere race for the remote after saying hey kids let's watch some royal british history on netflix oh yes note to parents (laughs) this not this episode of the history chicks because we're really good at turning some xxx into some pg at least pg-13 so Mm -hmm. you you needn't necessarily fear on our account but the actual show is almost in parts worse than the tutors season two and that is saying something Oh my god. In that regard. When I was watching it the first time, I was I was looking around to make sure that my younger son wasn't anywhere nearby. <laughs> that was a surprise, actually. There well, have been like a little warning or something. I thought there was. I think there's an MA warning on this episode. Oh, is there really? Oh, totally missed it. Okay. And so let's start with the recap. We open on a frontal of church bells. They seem kind of celebratory. We don't know what's happening. It could just be noon. <laughs> then a card. Brussels, Belgium, 1959. Playing in the background is a song called The Wonder of You by Ronnie Hilton. And this version is super smooth. Elvis's version, which is the only version that I had ever heard before, is sort of smokier. Just like you'd mm-hmm. expect, kind of. And this this version's pretty refined. So we pan down a building and into a room where we see Peter Townsend. Well, it's such a lovely shot. You're going down the side of the building and then into the apartment building. These beautiful curtains are waving. There's these lovely ironwork balconies. It's just beautiful. I think it made me want to go to Belgium. Then the camera goes into the apartment and we kind of slowly pan around so we can see what's going on. And there's a champagne bottle and men's pants and some flowers that were never put in water. Uh, There's clothes on the back of a chair, glasses. And then we get to a naked back. Now, right next to that pillow, there's an open jewelry box. So in that one little movement, we've heard a whole story of the last, what, 12 hours at least? (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was really awesome. That was a great way to do that. And the naked back turns out to be Peter Townsend. It took me a minute to even recognize him because he was kind of unexpected. Uh, A quick refresher on him. He had been posted to Brussels. Let's read that as sent away by the government. So right now he is an air attache for the British embassy there, which seemed like a made up name if I ever heard one, but it's a real thing. So an air attache is the representative of his own country's air force, but in a foreign country. And at first I thought that there was some kind of major timeline compression here because publicly... And I can't for the life of me remember if we saw this in season one. Publicly, 
Margaret and Peter broke up in 1955, which is four years ahead of when the card says this is. And then I started to think, well, maybe not, maybe not, because they have been apart. And I guess we slowly realize all of that scenario, but I just couldn't remember if we had talked about them breaking up. Yes, she reads a letter in one of the episodes. I think it's a voiceover letter. In her room at Clarence's house, Margaret is sleeping in her clothes. I really love the way that they take the lines, the lyrics of the song and tie them into the scene because this particular lyric that's playing when we realize that Margaret is laying face down on her bed wearing whatever she wore last night mm-hmm. is, and when you smile, the world is brighter. <laughs> like, it don't look too bright. <laughs> so did we ever mention, in fact, that this is... Clarence House. If the show is following reality, this is not Buckingham Palace, which we've kind of been operating under the assumption that it is. So in reality, when Elizabeth and her family moved to Buckingham Palace, the Queen Mom and Princess Margaret together moved into Philip's old redecorating project. Uh Um, And I had wondered at first if this was her childhood bedroom. And I thought a 29-year-old woman still sleeping in her childhood bedroom, uh, I can see why she's getting freaked out. But in fact, that's not her childhood bedroom. In fact, it's not even her childhood home. So (laughs) there you go. (laughs) There's that at least. But again, she's a 29-year-old woman who is looking around and everybody else is getting married and she's still living at home with her mom, (laughs) regardless of if it's a childhood bedroom or not. I can imagine her mindset, you know? So there are a few intricate scenes here, um, hard to kind of separate, of Peter in his place and Margaret in her place. Toward the end of this montage, he is writing a letter and she is getting it and reading it. The upshot of this whole montage is Peter Townsend has some news for her. (laughs) They really showed their personalities in these two particular scenes because Peter just kind of gently gets up. He doesn't have any displeasure on his face. He gets up and does what he has to do. Whereas Margaret wakes up when the maid opens the door and all she does is say, get out. (laughs) Poor Princess Margaret's servants. I mean to say, can you see them downstairs? Like, how come I get screamed at? Queen Elizabeth, I hear, just says thank you. (laughs) They must have, like, draw short straws for the, you know, Alka-Seltzer tray. Oh, no, I think it's that one lady. I <laughs> think po- she has a permanent short straw situation. <laughs> <laughs> but Margaret is a mess. Um, she's fully dressed, where Peter's in his robe, and he's smoking and writing that letter. And there's a close-up of the Alka-Seltzer tablets being dropped into the glass of water. Psh! Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Oh, my goodness. I hope. <laughs> that used to be the jingle for it. Yeah. I, is it available anymore? I never need it. Hmm. Alka-Seltzer Plus, the cold medicine. Right. But I really I have know. no idea. I, I prefer to just have a grilled cheese sandwich or some mashed potatoes. That seems to work better for me the morning after a little bit of overindulgence in the old fermented juice situation. Um, yeah, comfort food is perfection. The next day. And I don't know about Alka-Seltzer. I think that would make me feel more sick. Maybe I tried it once in my life. But if you don't drink the water and take the aspirin the night before, you're screwed anyway. (laughs) Margaret gets her hungover self off the bed and kind of ambles over to the tray. And she sees her mail. Her mail and the Alka-Seltzer are on the tray. And she grabs that letter from the pile because you can see on the postmark it says Belgium on it. And it's that letter that Peter wrote. And there's a voiceover of him. Uh, 3rd of August, 1959. Dearest Margaret, 
I write to you with a heavy heart. Now, I don't know why she like keeps reading after that. <laughs> Because that's all you need, right? She doesn't need to, but she kept racing through it. And he goes on to tell her about this young woman named Marie Luce, who he had met, and they traveled the world together. She was his secretary. Yada, yada, I've asked her to marry me. And Margaret's face is just in shock. And then she reacts in a Margaret way. There's a vase of flowers on the desk, and she just bashes it, and it flies across the room. And then, of course, she cries. I think there must be one servant just to deal with broken crap in Princess Margaret's room. <laughs> That's true. They probably have a really good system for dealing with glass shards. <laughs> now, that might be a short straw situation. Yeah. I get it, I guess. That is a shock. Also, in my mind, it has been for years. Now, I think the fact that he's getting married to a 19-year-old feels like a slap to her, although it seems like true love. They stayed married for a long time. The end. I mean, he didn't... It's not a revenge situation. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. He didn't do it to make her mad. And remember how Princess Margaret was already sort of feeling on the shelf, enough to marry that Billy Wallace just to, I don't know, take the word single out of the way people refer to her. I mean, she was desperate to marry... Billy Wallace, which no one could believe in the first place. Um, This is just feeding her already present anxiety about not being married. Yeah. Now, I don't know if she knows who this woman is. Uh, We do now, of course. But Marie Luce is very young. She's 19. And when Margaret broke it off with Peter, she was 25. But they had started dating when she was 17. And they look kind of alike. Very thin, dark hair. Marie Luce is a very wealthy heiress. So there's a couple similarities between the two. So I don't know that Margaret knows who this woman is, but from where I'm watching it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that looks just like you. Well, yeah, we do see a silhouette, Mary Luce, in the background. And I honestly would not read too much into the fact that she looked like Princess Margaret. You know, people kind of sometimes have a type. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know Maria Luce at all, but I guarantee you she's less work than Princess Margaret (laughs) and has, I don't know about less baggage, but like more manageable baggage. (laughs) <laughs> I would be willing to bet the odds are with me on that one. <laughs> I'll put the video on our show notes of the real Peter and the real Marie Luce doing some kind of photo op together after their engagement was announced. And she's beautiful and she looks like she's charming the crowd. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. glad for Peter Townsend. He seems to honestly have found happiness. I do want to mention that there was a point when Princess Margaret staggered out of bed and sat there and the silhouette of Princess Margaret's hair, I just wrote, you know, Jet's hair looked like that once when he got into the syrup. He was like four and his hair really did stick up like that. And I thought that is a good look. And I think you could just send the hairstyle apprentice in that day with a bunch of dippity doo and a fist. (laughs) It's a good thing that Margaret gets to get glammed up because they sure make her look bad a lot. I know. Is there a special assistant just to put eyeliner under her eyes? (laughs) So now we have the credit sequence. We have entered the main body of the show. Princess Margaret and Tony are in a gallery where he is obviously showing his works. 
This is my favorite shot of, I think, maybe even the entire series. Margaret is standing in front of this picture window, looking down this street, which looks very period, I think. And she's got this great coat on, and she just looks so stylish. And it's just perfectly framed. I loved it so much that I went on Google Earth to find out if that's really what the street looks like. (laughs) It's a gazelle art house. And yeah, the street does kind of look like that. I mean, you know, now, of course, it's many, many years later. But that's the view she would have had. If you are traipsing about London right now, by chance, um, and you are near the corners of Stafford Street and Dover Street, do snap a picture, would you? (laughs) I would put a giant sofa there in the window and look at it all day. If that was my house, that's what I would do. A giant blue velvet sofa. Uh, Also, speaking of velvet, I am a nut for her coat. I am a nut for printed velvet. Yes, but I don't like the shape of it. Now, (laughs) Princess Margaret is not letting me down this episode. Finally, maybe it's Tony's influence. Tony did help her pick out her clothes. He really did help um, create her public image, I guess. He was her style guy in real life. So, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe that's why the clothes are getting better for you. (laughs) They are talking about Peter Townsend. And she proposes marriage. On the wall are all these enormous uh, photographs of of Tony's. There was a beautiful one of five men, older men in trench coats with a bicycle next to them. And then just behind them is a tricycle. I just kept staring at that picture. It was really lovely. I really liked it. It had a lot of emotion, I guess, to it. So Margaret tells Tony that she had received this letter from Peter Townsend. And Tony immediately starts in on the snappy retorts. He's like, group Captain Bohr. And Margaret, of course, keeps defending Peter to Tony that he's telling him he's not a bore. And he says something like, he's a straight-backed, obedient, decent, missionary fashion, three quick minutes guy. (laughs) He also refers to him as a pajama man, stripes and ironed. Hmm. The problem is, and Margaret explains this, that her and Peter, when they broke up, had a marriage pact. Although she pronounces it pecked, like hen pecked. We had a pact. <laughs> this marriage pact said if they couldn't be together, then they neither one of them would marry. And now he's marrying some 19-year-old girl he met in Brussels. And of course, the 19-year-old part, that gets Tony interested. Like, oh, wait, maybe I misjudged him. Like, I didn't think he had it in him. Oh, yeah. Because really, at this point, Peter Townsend is 45. That's a pretty significant age difference. But we've seen it before. Didn't we just talk about Fruity Metcalf with his wife, who's, you know, almost Mm -hmm. 20 years younger than him? I think for the aristocracy, that's actually not a completely weird scenario, even Mm -hmm. now in the 50s and 60s. No, and like that situation, she's the one that's bringing the big bucks into the marriage. In a rare moment of compassion, Tony asks Margaret how she feels about it. And she admits to him that she's hurt that Peter found happiness first. And, of course, now Tony just slips back in. He's found marriage, the very opposite of happiness. (laughs) And her face is just so confused. It's like, oh, this is not where I wanted this conversation to go. Yeah, he says only dreary conventional people get married. She has a thought, and, of course, it's probably not for the first time that day. Do you think you and I could do it? Pause, pause, pause. Unconventionally. So she's proposing to him as like almost like a business deal. Like, we, we could do that. We could do it our way, right? <laughs> what a weird proposal. Of course, he's not keen on it. The look of crazy naked 
longing, that's what I'm going to call it, on her face is sort of freaking me out. Not like I love you or even like I love assorted scenes in your apartment, which you can kind of sort of understand, but like it is more like, please, won't you be my lifeboat? It's really not good. No. Not healthy. No. Maybe she's thinking, you know, well, this is not the right way to go into marriage. It's very unconventional to go into it that way. But we're two very unconventional people. So maybe... I don't know. Well, his response is basically blurg. <laughs> that's I mean, that's the whole. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. He says um, only if we violated every god awful vow they'd make us take. <laughs> She's like, yeah, it's not going to happen. So luckily, saved by the bell, saved by the porter or whoever, the owner of the gallery. It's you know time to open the doors. Well, let's go downstairs. It's time. Woo! You know he doesn't even seem that relieved. It's more like this wasn't even a real conversation. <laughs> Margaret gets pretty upset. She gets angry. Oh, she does. She follows him down. And upstairs, it was just the two of them. But when they go down the stairs in the gallery, which I'm going to say is that gallery, because if you go inside of it online, it looks exactly like that. I really hope that they got to use this location. And who wouldn't? As a gallery owner, wouldn't you love the publicity that comes from this show? But Margaret is not happy. She follows him downstairs and she leaves. Even though I think her presence has sort of been the key to publicity for this event. Oh, it is. They're outside of the doors. There are so many people waiting to get in. And a lot of them are pressed because as soon as she appears, the flashes start going off. So she's the big draw here, you know, for the press, not necessarily for the patrons who are outside, too. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely a big draw. Well, and so she says something to the effect of if you're not interested in what's important to me. And then she kind of dangles that like then and she doesn't say this part, then I am not interested in what's important to you. This whole situation seems so high school. I find myself so irritated. Like she's irritated upstairs because Peter Townsend has found love first, which seems dumb. (laughs) Like it's the premise of a teen movie. People break up and then they hurry to try to find prom dates, you know, that'll show (laughs) each other up or whatever. It's like we've seen this movie before. (laughs) Well, sure enough, the first thing any of the reporters say the second the doors are open is, where's Princess Margaret gone? He has a good way about him, old Tony, and he turns it around. He's like, well, here's Larry Olivier. There's Marlena Dietrich, Alec Guinness. There's a lot of famous people here. (laughs) He really was a celebrity photographer and, in fact, a family, royal family photographer even before this thing with Princess Margaret, he had some street cred for mm-hmm. real. Um, I would also like for you to notice right before Princess Margaret, let's call it flounces down the hallway to the back door, <laughs> um, there is a picture on the wall that is of a ballerina. So I just want you to note that. And if you can get a good look at it on your giant TV, please do, because I'm wondering if that's someone we're going to see here in a minute. Yeah, I wasn't sure either. I couldn't get in close enough. It just got kind of pixelated. You know, that portrait of Marlene Dietrich, that is iconic. There's like a puff of smoke behind her and she has a top hat on. If you think Marlene Dietrich, that's the image that comes to mind. And he actually took that photograph. And also, I guess we haven't covered her yet. And you might not know too much about Marlene Dietrich, but she, how am I going to put this, is the female Tony Armstrong Jones in many respects. I think that's as far as I'm going with that. She was experimental as well as being charming and talented. Wow. You really do praise things well. Yes. So then the press chases Margaret down the street while Tony watches from a window. 
<laughs> I don't know what her driver was thinking because he drives right through this group of photographers. It's like he couldn't go the other way. If he had just taken a right and not a left, it, they would have avoided the whole scene. It's a um, one-way street. Oh, that's why. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why did he go that way? Okay, I'll accept that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the driver's off the hook for me. <laughs> So Margaret is in the back of the car and all these cameras are flashing at her. They really want this shot and the car takes off. This always confuses me because you see this all the time. The paparazzi follow the car. Now, some of them are on motorbikes, which, okay, they might be able to catch up. But the ones that are not, they're just screaming, Margaret, Margaret, like, what is she going to do? Say, stop and get out of the car and answer their questions? The only thing I can think of is that maybe it worked once. No harm in trying. What do you got to lose kind of thing? Oh, is this the first real paparazzi situation for the royal family? I mean, they are chasing her on motorcycles and getting up in her space. And I remember, yes, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip getting on and off the boat. They were behind a barrier. They weren't allowed to chase the car down the street. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Whereas this is a very strong foreshadowing of, say, the Princess Diana situation, where Mm -hmm. they make her very uncomfortable and afraid. She's afraid. Mm -hmm. So you can only imagine what it's really like for people now, like Meghan Markle. Oh, yeah. I, I can't, even though she's a celebrity and she's probably used to the attention, I don't think there's anything that could prepare you for that level. Mm-mm. Margaret has effectively sucked the journalists out of his gallery and you know they're going to get tired and come back it's fine at least some <laughs> of them will um, but he has the strangest expression on his face as he's upstairs at that window I don't know if he is like realizing her significance in his life or perhaps her power I don't know I thought he was laughing because the press were following her and he knew that she hated it I don't know. I, but, I'm i attributing that look to, I mean, just based on what happens later, it's almost like a switch flips. Like he realizes something about Princess Margaret's image and persona. Maybe. That it's bigger than he thought it was? Yeah. Okay. Because they're usually riding around pretty much incognito on his motorbike and mm-hmm. spending time back at his flat. <laughs> but what I guess what I'm saying is it's not Princess Margaret the person he's realizing. It's Princess Margaret the institution mm-hmm. that he, okay. I don't think, has necessarily been completely because, you know, he has seen her at a society wedding. Mm-hmm. And he might have seen her around the house when he's taking photos of Charles or whatnot, but he hasn't ever seen this frenzy in person, I don't think, before. No. So Tony has lunch with his mama, who I know best as Duckface. So I'm going to continue to call her Duckface. Do you know what we're talking about, listeners? If In Four Weddings and a Funeral, she is the, quote, the girlfriend that... Hugh Grant's character's friends all hate, hate, hate. An old girlfriend they just call Duckface. In fact, I don't even really remember her name. Name. No, I had to look it up. I didn't either. It's Henrietta. Okay. And she's the one that, like, cocks him. They're getting married, and he backs out. And so she, you know, punches him in the face, and he gets knocked out. It's a great scene. I was like, cocks him? I don't know if we need to get into that. But, okay, no. I see what you're saying. Cold cocks him. That's what you meant to say. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I do not know where that choice of words came from. Okay, we got it. I don't know. I think it's shortened. I think you can shorten it. But not with clarity. No. (laughs) Uh, Clearly, clearly, clearly. Tony is sitting and he's reading some very curiously preserved uh, pieces of press from his show. And they're all 
really positive. Gazelli exhibition transforms everything you think you know about photography. Photography at its finest. It's a hit. He reads through them and puts it into a very small portfolio and slides it across the table. And at this point, we can see that he is at a restaurant and he's obviously waiting for somebody. And then she arrives and first you think, well, who is this woman? And then he calls her mummy. You're like, oh my gosh, it's his mom. He's having lunch with his mom. He has pasted all his clippings into a book to show his mother. And this right here makes me really like him. And also, I'm so sad for him. I mean, he acts like he doesn't care about anything. You know, he acts mm-hmm. like he doesn't need anybody, that everything in life is just a big freaking lark and a joke. But he was someplace putting this whole book together carefully in case it came up or maybe he could, you know, casually hand it over. I feel sad for him. You feel that throughout this entire episode, moments of that. But she takes her time getting through that room. I mean, she is working the room as she's coming through. She's stopping and talking to people instead of going to meet her son for lunch. Because she sees him. He's at the end of the room. She stops to see Lord and Lady Trenchard. And this is the second Viscount Trenchard. And so I started to think about that. This is a newer title. I mean, maybe an easier in is what I'm literally thinking. You you can see by the look on Tony's face, he has seen this all before. The way she works the room. Oh, yeah. So he's a good son. He is. He does get up. He comes around to greet her. Smooch, smooch. He says, hello, mommy. And she says, hello, darling. Gross. <laughs> Uh, not that it's gross to call your son darling. It's just like, how dare you besmirch the word darling? Because you know you don't mean it. Well, she probably uses it a lot to talk to anybody. And what like, was the deal with her refusing to let him light her cigarette? Was her lighter more expensive? She doesn't want anything from him. She wants no part of him. But he's got it lit and she just brushes him off. I want to tell you about Mama a second. I really do. We need to go back mm-hmm. to understand my irritation, okay? Because otherwise you guys will be like, golly, dang, leave a dark face alone. What's the deal? Okay, so I want to tell you about Mama. And here, here's the very short version. So she married a lawyer and had two children. Susan and Tony, our Tony. And then when Tony was around four, they divorced and she upgraded herself to an earl, the sixth earl of Ross, who's an Irish peer. She was so known for social climbing that she was called Tugboat Annie because she went from peer to peer. (laughs) That's all I'm saying about that part. She nabbed one. Hooray. And she had two more sons. And these sons always got preferential treatment. This is not the crown. This is real life. The higher ranked sons, as she saw them, maybe the non-mistake sons, the ones she doesn't have to explain because they have titles. I just also want you to remember that this woman never came to visit him when he had polio. He was 16. He was in the hospital for six full months and she never came to visit him. Nobody did. Only an uncle came and his sister. His sister came a couple times. But yeah, neither parent came to visit him that whole time. And he's 16 and they put him in an adult ward when he had polio. So he didn't even have people his own age around him. Now, I did read one account that said that she had given him a camera. My feeling is that that's a little tidbit that she threw in someplace and got picked up. I think she was super against it, actually. She um, thought it was embarrassing 
type of profession to take up. Mm -hmm. You get your portrait taken by photographers. You don't be the photographer. I guess the last thing I'm going to say about real life mama is that she, this is open. This is no secret. She used to introduce the Ross sons as her sons and him, Tony, as literally, oh, this is my ugly son. Or she would say, oh, this is my other son. You guys. So I know. I, I just want to say he has been shaped in his personality by his upbringing in a way that I, I mean, we haven't seen this direct of a result, I don't think. Mm-hmm. You know, why would he let somebody get close to him? I do want to add one thing. Uh, this seems to be a common theme that's woven through all these episodes. Both her first and her second husband went to Eaton. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know what? Maybe Philip was right to be so irritated about it being a boys club. It wasn't only a boys club. It was a freaking high school, college reunion <laughs> every day in his whole life. Like if you didn't go to Eaton, what the heck chance did you even have? <laughs> so he kind of shyly says, you didn't come to my exhibition. And she explains it, that she had to go and see his brother at the Irish Guard Parade, and he has to explain, it's my half-brother, and they have these all the time. I have an exhibition once a year, and you couldn't come to it, but you went to see, again, your favorite son's thing he does all the time. It's like, really? And this may be the second brother, Martin, the Honorable Martin Parsons. It doesn't really matter, the timeline, uh, you know. Um, The point is, she absolutely prioritized whichever brother it was over him, who had, as he says, reminded her about his exhibition. So he really did want her there. It's not like a matter of just like, hey, I have an exhibition. No, he especially tried to make sure she would come. Mm -hmm. Again, now I'm feeling really badly for him. And that's why he brought all those clippings. He opens a portfolio and gives it to her and tells her that all of the reviews are good. And she's so snotty. She says, well, I read the Times. And his face, it's like, that was the only naysayer. Like, there's one bad review. And of course she reads that one. (laughs) That's the one she reads. Yeah, and of course that's going to stick in her head. She's never going to listen to these other ones. She doesn't even care about the other ones. Here's what she wants to know. Is there a mention of, quote, her? (laughs) And when he says that Margaret wasn't there, you can literally see flashed across her face. Well, this was a freaking waste of my time then. Mm -hmm. The look on her face kind of says, you loser. She assumes that Princess Margaret has rejected his offer of marriage. Of course she did, huh? And he gets sort of a sick delight. I mean, good for him. And telling her, no, it was the other way around. I was actually surprised at first that he was revealing this to her. He told his mom that they had a tiff over marriage. So he's telling his mom like private details of his life with Margaret. I guess uh, maybe it's going back to he wants to impress her and he wants to make points with her and do anything he can to get some positive attention from her. So, hmm. But you know what? If you can't get positive attention, it's certainly possible to get negative attention. And so he just shifts back into the old mode again. This last thing was like, I could have catapulted you to stardom. But I have chosen not to. And she is shocked. And she says, are you mad? But finally, he finds his spine and he says, most parents think no one is good enough for their children. Wow. She really does not seem to understand his point. And I just want to reach in there and shake her. (laughs) So anyway, we all hate Duckface, right? Can we all agree that we don't like her? Yes, we can definitely agree that we don't like her. That actress does a great job of it. 
So now there are two intercut scenes. There is a dancer at a photo shoot with Tony and a needlessly graphic sex scene. <laughs> there is an Asian dancer. You can tell she's a dancer because she moves her body beautifully, posing right where Margaret did for Tony. And Tony is taking her portrait and she just goes from one dance pose to the next. And you're like, oh, that's really pretty. He's taking a portrait. But then you see this scene, uh, the silhouette of them on the stairs without their clothes on what <laughs> honestly i'm telling you right now it would have been better without each and every second of the blue lit graphic half of the sex scene don't watch it on an airplane <laughs> no. i'm just saying i want you if you watch this part again just imagine how it would be without that part and just with i mean it was suitably titillating <laughs> without <laughs> those parts and it yes. was much more artistic. It made me think, why did you do that? I, I just got so irritated at the blue lit parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. It was totally unnecessary, completely unnecessary. They could have accomplished the same thing with just a few seconds of that particular, you know, blue light stuff. They yeah. had enough of that in the regular old photo shoot scene. I just thought they didn't need that other thing. That was really, I found it ridiculous. I, you know, whatever. And I would say without it, it was the Tudors season two. Everyone's like, woo, I got to get my fan. You know? <laughs> but this other thing just made me irritated. I'm like, you know, that seems exploitative, but okay. So this lady that we see, that we see a lot of, um, is one of Tony's long-term lovers. I mean, maybe even his first girlfriend. A woman with the improbable, but true, name of Jackie Chan. <laughs> this was not a casual thing, is I guess what I, I'm trying to get across. I mean, they've been going together, or whatever, for years and years and years and years. And um, Princess Margaret did see her photo on Tony's desk in that fifth episode. And, uh, you know, this is where I was wondering if that was her ballet portrait at the gallery. Yeah, there's another scene later that shows that same portrait and I was trying to see it then and I couldn't tell. I'm I'm going to guess it is cuz she was a dancer, she was an actress, she's a singer, a dancer. So it's implied here at the end of everything that Tony tells Jackie Chan about getting married to Princess Margaret. Like, this my dear is Asilo bye bye or whatever he says, you know. <laughs> but in real life, he um came to a movie set where she was working and told her and Jackie is reported to have said, "Well, I hope she can cope better than I could. That's something else. And is he taking a solo naked selfie there at the end? Is that what I'm seeing? I don't think Jackie's even there anymore. <laughs> I can't imagine. Maybe he's going to give it to her as a gift. Put it in your locket, darling. <laughs> so moving straight from that, Tony is in bed with a blonde lady because the boy is around. <laughs> and hey, Mr. Blonde Lady. Hello. Well, this whole reveal is so casual, isn't it? Um, Mr. Fry, as it is, walks by and like ruffles his hair. And then just flops himself down on the bed. So they're all three on their bed with their hair all messed up. And again, if you have kids in the room, you'd have to explain what was going on. And I couldn't imagine having to do that. It's really hot. They're having a slumber party. <laughs> And the woman wants to know how Jackie took the news. And <laughs> it's like everybody knows everybody around here. All right. And Tony says, not lying down. <laughs> Blurg. <laughs> the thing I find angering about this get together is that is that they are inexplicably talking about his relationship and future marriage to Princess Margaret while they're all in bed together. It seems gross. He 
He's kissing and telling, and I guess Jackie's probably okay with it <laughs> by then. But Princess Margaret is not okay with it. She's not okay with it. She doesn't even know it's happening. And to, to me, that's worse, that he's talking about her to them and everybody's joking around about her. And I, mm-hmm. I find that really betraying. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I can say because I completely agree with you. But these people, I mean, in real life, Jeremy and Camilla were friends of his for a very long time. There's no evidence that they had this kind of relationship except for one little piece. But um, this particular kind of relationship, there's no evidence of it, although it was rumored, which is probably why they put it in the show because it's, you know, soap opera-y. Well, it's obvious that Mrs. Fry does not want him to marry Princess Margaret. And I'm not really sure what dynamics at play here. She's married. He's in several long-term relationships. And is it the rank and aversion to the monarchy? Or this would be the most honorable, (laughs) realizing that the situation is bad for him. Now, on record, many, in fact, I'd even say most of his friends thought this was a very bad thing for him to do. Some of them even went so far as to say, well, you are you might as well just hang it up. Your art will be ruined forever. You've worked so hard to get this name for yourself, and now you're just going to throw it away for that business? They thought that Princess Margaret and, you know, the firm would mm-hmm. rob him of his essential self, I guess, would crush him like a bug and turn him into something else <laughs> that he would not be happy. And so I choose to interpret Mrs. Fry's concern. Now she used to be his girlfriend. We get a little hint from that, like, you're much better in bed since Jackie came along, implying that before Jackie came along, and they've been dating for five years, that there was Mrs. Fry in mm-hmm. the distance past that. So they have known each other in the biblical sense <laughs> for longer than that. So she's been around, but I'm just really choosing to give her the benefit of the doubt here that she is looking out for him i hope i I don't think it was that she thought that their little um rendezvous would end because she even says to him you know don't break it off with jackie and he's like i won't that does not bode well (laughs) um so she also schedules a casual meetup can we get together on thursday and she's he says oh i can't i'm going to pop the question she's like what question that question And the first thing, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. This line cracked me up. The first thing Camilla says is, you said she had thick ankles and the face of a Jewish manicurist. Uh, See, you know, I don't like that either. I don't like it. I don't like it either. But it's like, wow. He's been slagging her off to his cool friends. Mm hmm. Anyway, he agrees. Yes, I did. (laughs) But she's also nice, too. But then. This is revelatory to me. He says he has to marry Princess Margaret. Other reasons. Don't ask me to explain. Princess Margaret is going out. We're evidently back at Clarence's house. Margaret starts off. She's looking at herself in a mirror and she's got a really sad face on. When the last scene ended, the last thing we saw was Tony's face and it was really sad. And the first thing we see in this scene is Margaret's face equally sad. So they do have something in common, I guess. Well, she looks to me like she's gathering her courage for something. So she heads out for the evening. She gets all her things together and she walks by the room where mom is just in front of this television set, like right on it. And the queen mom is just happily watching a documentary about the Galapagos Islands. (laughs) And she's enthralled. 
I love the Queen Mom so much. Every time she appears, I just smile. Well, I have to say the look on Princess Margaret's face when she's staring at her mother, it is sort of disbelief that this is my life. (laughs) And in real life, here's what Princess Margaret has done. If she got irritated at something her mother was watching on TV, she would just walk in the room, turn it off. And walk back out of the room. I'm so surprised we didn't see her do it. But maybe there'd have to be too much explanation about it. But she would not even comment. And the Queen Mum never said a word about it. (laughs) She would like put her glass down kind of hard on a table. She would just wait for Princess Margaret to leave. And then she would turn the TV back on. And that's real. Yeah. So so at least she let her watch the thing about the turtles and just left the building. (laughs) It was sea lions. But yeah. Maybe she saw the enjoyment, although perhaps the look I read was, is that my future sitting around with my mom learning about sea lions and eating candy and drinking? Oh, the queen mom just loves TV the way people now are obsessed with their smartphones. And if you think about it, you know, she came up before TV and it's just miraculous. There's so much stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. On the box. Like, I can't believe it. So outside, Tony revs his engine in more ways than one, I have to say. (laughs) Margaret goes outside. Her car is waiting for her there. Again, heels in this gravel driveway. And (laughs) Tony is off to the other side on his motorcycle with his helmet and goggles on. And he just starts revving the engine. And they have this conversation with their eyes like, you should come with me on this motorcycle. And she's like, no, you should come with me in this nice car. Finally, She rolls her eyes and gives up and goes and climbs on the back of his motorcycle. (laughs) How did he get in the gates? Well, they had been seeing each other for some time. I mean, it wasn't uh, public knowledge, right? But people on the inside knew. So perhaps, perhaps. Well, I don't know. But that footman gave (laughs) the back of that motorcycle a freaking dirty look. I will tell you right now. And he ran for it. So I don't know who he's calling. But the driver is like, oh, my life. And he gets in the car and tries to follow them. And of course, Tony tries to lose him. (laughs) That's what they do when they're on the motorcycle, right? Has he just come from Mrs. Fry's embrace? That's all I would like to say right now. I know that was the plan. I don't know what time Mrs. Fry's train was. No idea. But that's the only thing I could think of. He's sitting there being, you know, macho, camacho, you know. Does he smell like Mrs. Fry's perfume right now? I just don't know. He might because she said she had lunch plans and then they were going to meet up afterwards. And his date with Margaret was in the evening. So, you know, they had, a, a you know, a nooner or something. It's like on The Bachelor, you know? The no. No. Do I wish to be enlightened? I am not really sure, but go ahead. Go ahead. They go from kissing one woman on a date to kissing another woman on the same date. This group date is just weird. I couldn't kiss somebody who would just, I mean, like a peck, one thing, but like these are kiss kisses. At least Margaret doesn't know about it. That Well, no, yes, that's true. Poor Margaret, though. Yeah. Now, there's two more intricate scenes. We've got scenes of Margaret and Tony on the motorcycle alternating with another violent-ish, let's call it grapply, <laughs> is all I can really say for it, um, sex scene between Princess Margaret and Tony. <sighs> they keep cutting back and forth really well, really fast. And a lot of the scene, again, wasn't necessary, although it did not show as much as the blue lit scene. But again, it was in the same place, in his loft. Ooh. They did some really great shots to show Tony trying to lose 
the driver. There was one, it was in the rear view mirror and he's looking back and the driver's behind him. It was just kind of a nice way to, instead of just following them through the streets, you know, from above or down below to watch it in the rear view mirror. I thought that was a clever shot. And the intercut scenes of them at the apartment at the beginning it they're like mad at each other almost like you no you no you and then they both kind of warm up to the idea i thought that was really odd i would like to propose a theory and i want everyone to think about this she is whispering naughty nothings to him on the moto you can't hear it at all but you see it it's weird her face when she's done watch her at the end where she rests her face on his shoulder it looks like a task reluctantly got through that is literally what it looks like what am i saying here i think she decided on this course of action to convince him to marry her against her nature i really think she thought and thought about how am I going to make him marry me? He's the only one I have right now. Um, Timeline wise, I have to convince him. And so she changed her behavior to match his own. And I don't think she's comfortable whispering naughty nothings in someone's ear. I think she memorized them. <laughs> I do. I mean, she likes to be thought of as so avant-garde. And for the royal family, she is. There's not much competition. But in her heart, I think she's still pretty conventional. She just wants to be married, and this is his price, sort of, to act like this. And I think that's why the sex scene was also awkward. Like, she's trying to be, not knowing about Jackie Chan, she's trying to be Jackie Chan-esque with no knowledge of how to do it. And it, that's why it's awkward, because she's trying to do whatever it is she thinks he expects of her. That is my theory. That's a very solid theory. I mean, it's not unprecedented for a woman to... Um become like the guy she wants to, to marry or date even. So yeah, that's a very good theory. And it really was awkward. So side note, they drove by this van that I 100% wish was in my town. I want to say it's a T van. It is like a white, almost like a Volkswagen bus open at the side with tables in front of it. And Tony waves and Somebody at the um, deck waves back, and I just think it is very adorable. I am getting nothing in my head, and I watched this three times. Anyway, I wish somebody would open one around here. <laughs> that would be nice, I guess. Well, moving on to the next morning, Tony has a surprise for Princess Margaret, like an actual box with stuff in it. He has many surprises for Princess <laughs> Margaret, but in this particular occasion, it's actually a thing. I don't know if it was the next morning. Or just a couple hours later, maybe? Tony's awake. He's sitting in a chair. He's playing with his lighter. He's just wearing pants. So we know what's just happened. Um, <laughs> and Margaret comes walking down the stairs. And the first thing he does is light two cigarettes. I thought that was very thoughtful. I mean, he's <laughs> killing her. Although she does not die. Again, she does not die of lung cancer. Wait, Again. wait. I got to say something. You made me think of something. Just what? now. You say he lights two cigarettes and hands her one, which is thoughtful. Think about the lunch with his mother. He tried to light her cigarette. I think that might be one of the ways he shows affection. He tried to light her cigarette and she pushed him away. Oh. Moving on. Sorry. Because <laughs> he's lighting cigarettes for everybody, all the women in his life. <laughs> Except the one that he thinks is the most important. <laughs> who rejects him oh, anyway. but margaret didn't she took that cigarette and she sees this box there's a box on the coffee table it's just a big brown cardboard box and there's an ashtray and a drink on top of it instead of a bow 
which is exactly what she needs. Again, this is pretty thoughtful. And he says, open it. So we know that he had already made up his mind to propose anyway. So this strategy that I was thinking about of Margaret's might not have been necessary at all. I think he was there already. For not a good reason, but I think he was there already. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely agree with you. (laughs) It's too bad. (laughs) So there's a big box and there's just some eye conversation like, okay. So she opens the big box and it's full of exposed film that she kind of digs down through. So it's instead of tissue paper, he uses exposed film. And inside that brown box is another um, hat box and that he has a picture of her eyes on top of it. Like if you take a picture and you rip out just a part of it, he has it on the top. So very artistic. And inside of that, there's strips of actual photographs. His packing materials are very clever. I mean, he does <laughs> use whatever's on hand. It's very, uh, you know, green of him. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm sure that's what he was thinking. Oh, yeah. 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 So inside of that is another hexagonal box. And this one says Fortnum and Mason, which is an upscale department store. So it's the box inside of a box thing. We've all done it, right? When she gets down to a smaller box, it's a jewelry box. And she's just got this weird look on her face. But she knew what the box means. So any 29-year-old woman who wants to get married and is expecting a small box like this needs to know that they have to keep their face straight because it might not contain an engagement ring. It might contain earrings because they use the same size box. This happened to me once and it was not good. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. I'm sorry for previous Susan. I know. Well, it worked out very well because shortly after that, I realized that that was not the man for me. Um, But that moment, I'll never forget it. I was like, oh, my God. Go with a tennis bracelet. (laughs) Something in a bigger box. (laughs) Or a tiara. Something that won't be mistaken because that, wow. Mm. (laughs) So we're finally down to the very small ring box. And she takes a deep breath and she opens it. And it's the ring. It's a diamond and ruby ring that actually looks an awful lot like the one that he really gave her. The one he really gave her was a ruby ring that he had designed to look like a rose because that's her middle name is Rose. It's very thoughtful. It's lovely. I'll put a picture on the website. So that is not an overnight situation. That is not a non-premeditated situation. So he's serious about the pursuit now. Yeah. Well, they don't say that in the show that he had designed it. What a nice engagement ring, right? Something designed just for her. It's lovely. So what wasn't good is that he doesn't even like ask. She's opening the box. She sees it. And he's not even saying anything for a while. And finally he does. He says, not a question, but a statement. Marry me. And instead of, you know, in her heart, I'm sure she's going, yes, yes, yes. But there's a pause. And she says, I thought you hated the idea of marriage. And he says, I do. But I hate the idea of losing you even more. Mm. And then she gives him a yes, but not with actual words. I I have something to say about this. They go smooch or whatever. I guess the answer is yes. But she and he make some sort of agreement. He says, don't bore me. And then she responds back with, don't hurt me. This is a damaged beginning to a relationship. If you already have to put these giant caveats, don't bore me, don't hurt me. Uh, should pretty much go without saying at least the last part but it doesn't go without saying it was very important to say which means i don't know kids i don't know he does promise it he agrees to it he's not gonna hurt her Mm -hmm. yes he is princess margaret 
at Buckingham Palace tells Queen Elizabeth about her engagement and Peter Townsend's engagement. Now, Margaret is in the line of succession, so she has to get the Queen's approval for marriage. This is where she tripped up with Townsend because when she went to get the approval, Elizabeth couldn't give it to her. So again, she's asking for the same thing and her attitude is just cold. There's nothing warm about the conversation. She's just full of bitterness and attitude and she's flicking her cigarette into the vase on Elizabeth's desk. Queen Elizabeth's reaction is a frozen smile. A frozen smile where she says nothing. She doesn't even go or anything. And then Princess Margaret says, well, silence is better than the ew I got last time with Peter Townsend. But I have to say it's wonderful that for change, Margaret has control of the conversation. And Elizabeth says she'll give it to her. And Margaret's like, I do hope there won't be any obstacles or objections this time. Elizabeth says, no, there won't be. You have my permission. She's like, say it. Like, say it in simple words so that I can understand it. And Elizabeth's face like, are you kidding me? She's genuinely shocked, but she shouldn't be. Elizabeth, I mean, sorry to call you Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth, have you not been observing your sister's downward spiral? Do you not remember breaking her heart a few years ago? Her surprise here is sort of insulting. I would expect nothing less than absolute vitriol Mm -hmm. (laughs) from Princess Margaret. I'm making no accusations for her behavior. Yes, it is snippy and snotty and direct and not very sisterly. But on the other hand, I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. And I will say Margaret looks great. She has a heathered sort of dark gray dress on with this ruby faux um, finish. It's like like Bakelite or something, jewelry. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, but her face, I mean, although beautiful, is hard as a diamond. It is not giving in any way, and nor should it be. Queen Elizabeth leans back after Princess Margaret demands that she repeat herself, so there will be no misunderstanding. And she says, I promise that I will never do anything to block any marriage of yours ever again. Thank you, says Princess Margaret, and then, you know, prepares to peace out. And Queen Elizabeth does try to say something. She says, now that you're... But Princess Margaret interrupts and tells her that Peter is marrying too. She's 19, says Princess Margaret. So my announcement must come first. And so Queen Elizabeth now knows that there is a bad motivation behind this marriage. It is definitely a rebound and is probably ill-advised, even if you really, really like Tony, which I don't think Queen Elizabeth really does. (laughs) No, I don't think she does at all. But she already screwed up Margaret's life once. There's nothing she could say at this point. So Tony in his studio, calls his mama to tell her about his engagement, but she is not interested in talking to him. Yeah, he's just laying there on the floor. He kind of looks like a teenager, you know, with a telephone. Well, okay, from our day, with a telephone in front of him. And right behind him is that ballet portrait. It's huge, but he's just kind of on the floor and he finally picks up his the phone and he calls and we see where the call goes to. It's this really creepy looking house and a butler inside picks up the phone and he asks to speak to his mother and he goes to get his mother. And then he comes back and 
he says, Lady Ross is resting at the moment. Well, liar, liar, pants on fire. She's sitting in the doorway right behind him. She doesn't want to talk to the kid. I think she's reading a magazine. I know. And she wants you to call her back tomorrow. And then the butler hangs up. This is not Tony hanging up. The butler hangs up first. There has been no instruction from his mistress to respect this particular son. I guarantee you, if Lord Ross's older son, this is Tony's younger brother, half-brother, whatever, Mm -hmm. had called, the butler would never have dared to hang up on that kid. Oh, no. And he wouldn't even have made an excuse. He would have said, I'll just go get her. Yeah, that would call would have gone straight through. No question about it. Can we talk about his pants? So Tony has these pants on and the, the front is blue and the back is white. They're so 60s. Well, he's a 60s kind of guy. I know he sure is. I think he's ahead of his trend because they're groovy, man. <laughs> well, Princess Margaret returns uh, happily, you know, check, check. She has alerted her relations and it's gone her way so delightfully because she got one over on her sister and left on an insult, which is exactly what she wanted. So she comes happily back. (laughs) He hears her coming up the stairs. And so remember, he's laying on the floor. He has to get up, but he gets up with a cane and then he hides the cane and kind of shakes off a limp. That's the limp that he had from polio. I mean, he had it his whole life and he figured out a way to walk to kind of camouflage it. But obviously, it's still hurting him. He had the cane there. He knew he was going to need that cane to get up. And he had a hiding place for it. That's so sad. Well, and then she jumps on him. Well, she doesn't know. No, I'm just saying, how is he standing? (laughs) Well, maybe it was like a crick and he just had to get get it shook out, maybe. Oh, maybe. And then he was, you know, solid again. So I think this whole needing of a cane is a pretty big thing to hide, isn't it? It's a huge thing to hide. And it's just another indicator that this marriage is off to a really rocky start because they're keeping secrets. Well, really quick scene of Michael Aideen coming to meet with Queen Elizabeth. There's um, not really much to this scene except for Queen Elizabeth asks him to sit down. And then we move to Princess Margaret and Tony. How shall we say? Après. And they are talking wedding locations. Yeah. Okay. So they're laying in bed. Um, Their heads are in the middle of the bed right next to each other. So his feet are toward the head of the bed and her feet are towards the foot of the bed. And they're, you know, having this pillow talk without a pillow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they want to make wedding plans. They're talking about where to do that. Now, while we're doing this, we're seeing the ring. And in this shot, you can see that it's a wide band with brushed gold, like in the box, it looked a lot like the original ring, but on her finger, it looked a lot more modern than the original ring looked. I thought that was weird that they wouldn't be so consistent with something like that. I could be wrong, but when she was opening the box of boxes, you know, Mm -hmm. did she not have a ring on her wedding finger? And maybe British people put it on the first finger still. I guess I don't know. But in America, we traditionally put our wedding ring on the third like next to the pinky that finger on your left hand and I could have sworn that when she was opening the box of boxes she had a ring at Peter Townsend's question mark on that finger but maybe in Britain that's not where the wedding ring goes Oh, so you're saying that the ring that I'm looking at on her engagement hand is not the engagement ring. Perhaps not. Another ruby and diamond ring. Okay, 
That's that's possible. That's sure possible. So she asks him where he wants to get married. She tells him that they don't have to get married at Westminster Abbey because she knows she'll never wear the crown. So he suggests Gretna Green and they laugh. It's a long term tradition since the 18th century, because in England, you had to be 21 to marry without your parents consent. And you had to be married in a church, whereas in Scotland, you could get married right away as long as you had two witnesses. Gretna Green is right over the border from England into Scotland. So it was the wedding destination for British couples uh, escaping to get married really fast. And it still is. They have like 4,000 weddings there a year. In Gretna Green, the place to get married then was a blacksmith shop. And I'll link you up to GretnaGreen.com. But it says that the symbolism is like the metals he forged, the blacksmith could join the couples together in the heat of the moment, but bind them for eternity. That is a very poetic way of saying everybody used to hang out and drink at the blacksmith shop because it was the only warm place in town. So you'd always be sure of finding witnesses there. (laughs) But they've done a lovely job now of making it all very, uh, it's probably a lot like Green Gables is, you know, commercialized. Or like his second choice, Las Vegas. I don't think you could yet get married by Elvis as he was still Elvising and not yet a staple of quick weddings. So Queen Elizabeth in her office tells Michael Dean to help Princess Margaret to announce her engagement. But he raises a concern. When Michael Dean says it's to be the photographer, Mr. Jones, she is quick to correct him. Armstrong Jones. So I'm guessing that's better. Like a hyphenated name is better. There is a book called Enchanted April where there is a lawyer named Melorsh Wilkins. And he wants his wife to refer to him as Mr. Melorsh Wilkins as if he had a hyphenated name. It's very important to him for social climbing purposes. And so I'm guessing the hyphenated name equals a higher social class or more acceptable. It does look fancier. Like, you can't believe that Margaret's going to get married to this guy. Elizabeth's only answer is she's quite within her rights. <laughs> like, okay. And we can ill afford another drama like Peter Townsend. You, yourself, Queen Elizabeth, did not need to afford the first Peter Townsend drama as far as I'm concerned. So I'm glad you realized you can't afford a second one. <laughs> so the only reason I'm not making any uh, objections to this marriage is because we already screwed up once. We can't screw up again. So she's got control of the whole situation. It's Margaret's game and she's leading it. Well, and she does say, I'm going to support it. Then she says, critically, come what may. In classic Michael Adine style, he does pause and says, there's one slight problem. And then the scene ends. Yeah, when he says slight problem, I'm like, only one? You guys are not paying attention very well. (laughs) But it ends up not being what I thought, but huh. So Princess Margaret and Tony decide to marry at Westminster Abbey. We go back to the pillow talk, and actually, Tony surprises her, and he says that the Abbey would be great. It would be the new world and the old world. Then he gets really dramatic, like an eagle with two heads facing in opposite directions. Okay. He is manipulating her to choose Westminster Abbey for his purposes. I would like to put that interpretation on this. He is literally leading her to choose Westminster Abbey for a specific reason. That's what I think. 
Oh, yeah, but she doesn't think so because she jumps right on it. Great. Let's make it bigger than my sister's. Let's eclipse her. Let's shake this place to its core. This whole thing is rotten from the inside. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not down. (laughs) Also, you know what, Princess Margaret? Queen Elizabeth got married during wartime austerity. She used donated ration coupons. However, realistically, nevertheless, she made sure to gather enough ration coupons to afford her dress to help. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, that's the situation. But it is now 1960. So you're going to be able to eclipse her. She couldn't have a big wedding because how would that have looked? Mm -hmm. Knock yourself out. No one is begrudging you. No. That whole shake this place to its core thing. Is that like she's thinking he's more avant-garde than he is or I don't know. Well, look at his face. She says, let's shake this place to its core. Watch what he does. He turns his head away like... All right, mission accomplished. <laughs> like, he doesn't care. He's not joining in the glee. The uh, I don't know. Just kills me. It's just, like, uh, I have no idea how real-life Princess Margaret and Tony Armstrong Jones came to their arrangement. But as portrayed in this show, it is an extraordinarily dysfunctional situation. <laughs> well, I know in real life, the proposal wasn't anything like it's in the show, um, and she had gotten that letter from Townsend while she and Tony were staying at Balmoral. So it came then. And Tony was able to ask for Elizabeth's permission before they made any announcements. So Tony, in real life, kind of did the right thing right. and was more involved, you know, more traditionally involved in the engagement than this is making it look to be. I'm kind of medium relieved by that, actually. <laughs> Yeah, he did follow the uh, proper protocols, I guess. This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens with those wedding plans. And now a brief intermission. And we are back. So Princess Margaret and Queen Elizabeth are talking about the wedding arrangements. Margaret is so excited to tell her sister. I mean, that it, this is a very different conversation than the snotty one. This time she's sitting in the last conversation. She was standing. This one, she's sitting with this huge smile on her face. And she says, small announcement, big wedding at the Abbey. Ta-da! <laughs> I love that. So she does seem happy. But, says Queen Elizabeth, but there has to be a delay for the engagement announcement because Queen Elizabeth is pregnant. And then we get Margaret snotty again. I mean, it's like a switch is flipped. I like how she's like, what does this have to do with anything? Congratulations, by the way. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It's a protocol issue. It's just protocol. Until a sovereign's child is born, no other family announcements can be made. Margaret is getting hat up. This is a scheme to put me off marrying. Bullshit, in other words, which I sort of think too. It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, listen to it. Want to hear it again? Until the sovereign's child is born, no other family announcements can be made. It sounds, number one, easily overcomable by Queen Elizabeth just saying no. 
Number two, ridiculous. Like people can't handle an announcement of a wedding and then five and one half months later, another announcement. Stop the crazy circus. These royals and their antics, who can keep up? Uh, I I agree because I'm sitting there going, you're the queen. You could change this around. This happened to Margaret the last time. Elizabeth had said before Margaret officially came to her and asked to marry Peter Townsend that she was supportive of the marriage. But then her advisors had come to her and said, no, you can't do that. You're the you're head of the Church of England. We don't recognize divorce. Peter is divorced. There's no marriage. You can't allow it. Why is she making her sister go through this again? Well, Queen Elizabeth does come up with an idea. I don't know if it's on the fly or if she's been thinking about it. Probably she has since Michael Dean let her in on the little secret, which I still think she could overcome easily. But whatever. Queen Elizabeth is going to host a party. Here's some insurance for you to prove that I'm serious. You will marry him. We're going to have the family, all of your friends. We are openly going to support this marriage. But that's not enough. Remember, Margaret wanted to announce this before Peter did. So she was racing a clock and she she just lost that race because she can't get married until they announce it. I mean, that's protocol, too. So Margaret is not happy with this. You know how Queen Elizabeth always presses the button to get the doors to open? <laughs> Margaret's the one that presses it and just stomps out of the room. Well, yes, that was literally the whole reason to go for Tony in the first place. Like she's been through all of this, what I'm going to call pretense. Because I am. It's Mm -hmm. like 75% pretense to get this one goal of scooping Peter and his announcement. And now that is off the table. She is not going to make it into the papers before Peter. And it's going to be embarrassing and irritating. Although, really, people do forget. And it's not that big of a deal. He found love before you did. The people will understand. But Margaret does not understand. She is so mad. She heads up the stairs. And Queen Elizabeth is trying to reinforce her support, and says, we never did that for Peter Townsend. And then <laughs> Margaret says, you never did anything for Peter. Ah, That didn't work out like Margaret had planned, that's for sure. I still don't get it. It's like those obscure rules in baseball. Like a runner can go to first on a dropped third strike. I hope I got that right. I, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, Princess Margaret is livid. I don't blame her. It's not reasonable. The fries... And Tony, I'm assuming in the Fry's flat, are watching election returns. And he lets us in on some leftover childhood feelings. They're sitting on the couch. It looks like a really normal living room. It it doesn't look like, you know, Tony's place is industrial chic, I guess. Right. But it looks like a very middle class living room. And the three of them are sitting on a sofa watching the election returns from the UK general elections of 1959. It's really funny to me to watch the graphics that they were using. <laughs> to show that somebody was elected, they have these little cutouts of men and they move them from one line to another. And then there's a dial to us. It's really funny and very uh, amateurish. But at the time, I'm sure that it was very slick. You know, Most people are still amazed that the picture's coming into their house at all on a little box. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> their standards are pretty low for graphic um, design. <laughs> <laughs> I think what interests me is that such bohemians want the Tories to win. I am not completely clear on this, unless it's a class thing rather than a philosophy thing, because Mr. Fry is a chocolate heir. I mean, he 
has got skin in the game monetarily if if that's are they like exactly like the republicans and democrats around here like are the tories the party of rich or the party of class i just can't i can't understand why these free spirits are rooting for the tories i think somebody british needs to probably get on the horn and make us understand about that <laughs> yes, that would be great. But I, I was wondering why they were even watching them to begin with. Unless they knew this guy, Hope. He's not in their age group, though. I looked him up. Mm-mm. But that would be my, you know, oh, surely he's part of the gang. Probably not. But it does look like they were having a party. So part of me wants to say it was just an excuse to have a party. Like people who don't like the Super Bowl, they still have Super Bowl parties. Oh, uh, yes. So while they're talking about that, he mentions that it's probably going to be an earldom to make me acceptable. And then he says, not a effing dukedom, which I thought was a slam on Prince Philip. And then he goes into what he's really concerned about. I drank higher than that man my mother took as her second husband, the Irishman, when she left my father. Higher than the son she gave him, little Brendan, le vicomte, which was puzzling to me because he's actually Baron Oxmanton. So I don't know why he called him the vicomte. Hmm. Mrs. Fry is looking very sympathetically to him. She does. This, they're good friends. Okay, so we saw them in the bed before, so they have that aspect of their friendship. But sitting here on the sofa, you can tell that they're good friends. They've been through a lot together, although Mr. Fry doesn't say a whole heck of a lot. He kind of just nods a lot. Did you notice that? I mean, he was important in the character's life because he was supposed to be the best man. More right. on that later. But maybe... Maybe this guy isn't a very good actor and he just looked nice. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Tony has a reflective moment. This whole thing, he should be kind of excited. He's getting married. He's going to get a title. He's going to outrank, you know, the rest of his family. But he's just seems so sad. And he tells his friends a story. This is an actual thing that happened. When they traveled, Brendan got to go in first class and Tony had to travel back in third class. That's crazy. They're in the same family. I I just can't get beyond how crappy that is. I know. And that's not even, there's no drama there. That's what really happened. Well, he jokingly refers to himself as the, quote, runt son from the unsatisfactory marriage with no title and a polio twisted leg. And now Mr. Fry is looking sad for his friend. And yes, he doesn't say a lot, this Mr. Fry, the chocolate empire heir. (laughs) (laughs) But I do want to tell you two things about Mr. Fry, real Mr. Fry. He invented a four-wheel drive wheelchair. Both of them are very interested in wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. I thought that was something. This Mr. Fry, a little bit later, gave Mr. Dyson his engineering education and big break. Like, Dyson vacuum, Mr. Dyson. I just think things should work properly, Mr. Dyson. So he might have been silent, but he had a big impact on modern America. Oh, he did. I'm sorry that they didn't give him a little bit more meat to this character. He was an arts patron and he ran an engineering company. He's well educated and a really smart guy. And all we know about him from this show is that he likes three ways. (laughs) Well, and that he has a shapely, um, at least one buttock. I think that's all we saw. Oh, yeah, that's right. We did. <laughs> so there's two very important things to know. So Queen Elizabeth and Philip over in the palace have a sort of awkward and touching, I must admit, flirting moment. Although also I'm going to add cringy. For you? 
Okay, I I actually have that written in here. Okay. (laughs) We have skipped several months ahead because Queen Elizabeth is sitting in her chair having Bobo McDonald do her hair, and she is very pregnant. She's groaning a lot and rubbing her stomach, and they're obviously going someplace fancy because Philip is already dressed for dinner, and he's sitting in a chair you know, with some light reading. Man, Race, and Darwin. Papers read at the Joint Conference of the Royal Anthropological Institute of Great Britain and Ireland and the Institute of Race Relations. This isn't People Magazine. (laughs) I like how he's self-educating and how he's portrayed as always learning things and being interested in serious subjects. I, I, you know, I actually, although at first I was like, why are we harping on this book title? And then I thought, well, you know, we do want to illustrate his character a little, that he's not just idly sitting there. Although so I think it's funny that he started rereading his book again in the middle and got caught at it. And he finally asked her if she he could ask some questions. And she says, OK. And he asked, does it hurt? Very thoughtful question for a father to ask with your third child. Not so sure about that. <laughs> so Elizabeth goes on to explain the whole discomfort to him, um, the feeling of being cumbersome and tired all the time and not being able to bend over. (laughs) She says, it's like the journey from Aberdeen to Balmoral. It seems to go on forever. Why does that make him irritated? Because he goes, don't, like all of a sudden. He's mad about that. I have no idea. Maybe because she just loves going to Balmoral and she escapes there as often as possible. And she points out that it's very uncomfortable not to be able to see your toes. One's toes are disappearing. (laughs) (laughs) that's what i thought oh my gosh beckett's gonna love this part because we're gonna talk about their feet (laughs) i don't mind talking about feet and she has pantyhose on i don't care about talking about people's feet i just don't like to see them in a flip-flop or sandal situation (laughs) i don't mind hearing that feet exist they function nicely they keep people upright and move you around the country i don't mind feet existing i just don't like to regard them in their naked quote glory (laughs) well philip does because he goes over to her and he says i like your toes and she's like no my toes are hideous and he says this is kind of crude they're the second best thing about you and she asks, what's the first and i was like how did mcdonald know to go right then until i saw the little queen elizabeth hand flick they have got that down to a freaking science i didn't even see it it's like a magic trick and she hustles her patoot right out of that room. Oh, I thought she hustled just because she knew what was going on here. Nope. She gave her a little hand signal and it took me several watchings to catch it. Ha! Well, I applaud your dedication here. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. (laughs) What's the first? But he ponders it. He's like, two things. And she's pregnant, so they're not two little things right now. (laughs) This whole thing is very real. It's not, you know, your royal highness blah, blah, blah. It's not formal. It's just kind of crude and kind of the way that married people talk. Well, he calls her, he goes, you milkmaid, barmaid. And then he gets behind her and has a curious look on his face as far as I'm concerned. Uh, And he says, indulge me, pull me a pint, filthily, go on. (laughs) She's never been to a pub, far as I know. Pulling you a pint, don't know. Okay. And then, filthily, do you not know who you're talking? Like, okay. And then she says, I haven't the faintest idea of either thing, I think. (laughs) It's cute. I thought it was very cute because he gets behind her and he moves her arm to show her, you know, to do it. And she does it. 
He says, look me in the eye. And she's like, oh, she awkwardly looks him in the eye. And I'm like, Queen Elizabeth, old Tony would blow your mind. You could never even handle his conversation. (laughs) You do not know to what level your sister is dealing with pulling pints for people while looking in their eye. I'm just saying. The uh, most fabulous cars ever are pulling up outside Buckingham Palace. And we see Margaret arriving in yet another wrinkled pink satin dress. <laughs> I did notice that. It's lovely, but it was wrinkled. It's getting out of the car. Satin just doesn't travel. It's nighttime. There's some loud music playing, and it's not like classical music. It's dance music. It's modern music. And Margaret's car pulls up, and she's just got this big smile on her face. You have to be happy for her. She's excited. This is her big party. And she gets out of the car and walks inside in this dress with the long pink train behind it, and it is all wrinkled. (laughs) Well, inside, the guests are irreverent. I guess I can say irreverent. And Queen Elizabeth is uncomfortable. And Mrs. Fry has a surprise for Tony. And it's not in a box. (laughs) Inside, Elizabeth and the Queen Mother are stuck talking to Tony's mom. And Tony's mom is like lapping this all up. She is a social climber. So standing there talking to the queen mom and the queen must be like a pinnacle moment in her entire life. And she's saying, I'd adore you to come to Burr in March. That's when we have the hunt. Burr Castle is where they live. That's that creepy looking building that when Tony called. (laughs) Can I add something? I am going to link you to a blog that the brother, the main Ross brother, the heir, wrote about his treatment at boarding school because he was, quote, only the son of an Irish peer. So I just want to throw that out there, that here Lady Ross has social climbed to become a countess Yes, Countess sounds good, but according to the English aristocracy, she is in a lesser panoply of peerages, if that makes sense. No, totally. It's like going to Tiffany's and buying a, a key fob or something. It's like, oh, my Tiffany's key fob. It's from Tiffany's, but it's just a key fob. <laughs> I don't know. It only makes sense if you realize like how far she is trying to punch up by buttonholing the Queen Mom and Queen Elizabeth. She's <laughs> aiming high. Queen Mom is actually... I thought she was very polite, sort of engaged in the conversation, whereas Elizabeth's eyes are just like darting all over the room like, oh, my God, how do I get out of this one? Doesn't she have a thing with her handbag that somebody can come and save her? (laughs) The party is exactly what Margaret and Tony wanted. It's the old and the new, and they're just mashed together because there's the older people who are very prim and proper, and then the younger people are just crazy. It's like a frat party with fancy clothes. They're even mocking the footmen. Not cool. They are part of the family. That's right. And Jeremy sees this painting on the wall and he does the pose of the painting. It's of a woman and he's posing like her. Not cool. She's part of the family. I know. Literally. (laughs) There's irreverent and then there's just insulting and bad manners. And I think in that particular area, they've gone over the line. So from Elizabeth's trap situation, she sees but does not hear Tony and Mrs. Fry. There is something in their body language that is upsetting her. (laughs) If only she'd seen their body language about 11 minutes ago in the show. (laughs) Tony goes over to get drinks and Camilla is at the bar 
she's not smiling. She doesn't look very happy. And he tries to joke with her about the dusty relics at the party. And she's just not having it. And finally, she says, Tony, I'm pregnant. And immediately he's like, me? And she says, 99% sure. She hadn't even told her husband yet. She's 99% sure it's Tony's. I guess they can both work out some kind of scheduling concerns because I don't know how you could be sure. I guess, you know, they know the details of what happened and where, etc. So that's all I'm saying about that. What I do wonder is how is her dress staying up, by the way? It, I mean, okay, and I normally don't like a strapless dress. I'm normally very against them. But in this particular case, and in this particular dress, which is kind of patchworky, but in a very glamorous way, it oddly suits her. And I really like it. We do get a little view as the camera pulls back, we get a view of the whole dress and it is very adorable. I, you know, I'm sorry for her unhappy um, face and situation, but the dress is very cute. <laughs> I was too wrapped up trying to imagine why she would be afraid to tell her husband when her husband very well could have been there when the child was conceived. Well, evidently not. Or how would she be 99% sure? And also, surely, you know, such things might occur. Mm -hmm. You've not had this conversation? I know. <laughs> that's, that's my point. It's like, he knows that you guys are sleeping together. There's no secret. So why is she afraid to tell him? Maybe because it's going to ruin their lifestyle. Oh, I don't know. You could be right. I hope it's not that selfish. I hope she's concerned for the child and its well-being and not for the cessation of party time. Aren't you an upper-class British person? Hand the child off at birth. Keep partying. Well, you were in their house. They didn't have any servants, did they? But you're right. Maybe we can't afford a nanny on our chocolate fortune. I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, maybe his engineering company hasn't taken off yet. Maybe, I don't know where we are in his personal timeline. I really think it's going to end their wild parties at their house. They can't have those anymore. You know, there's a baby. A baby changes everything. Well, still at the party, but kind of on the side, Prince Philip is indignant about Princess Margaret's low standards and how society has changed. This is probably the wildest party that Buckingham Palace has ever seen. The music is loud. It's very contemporary. People are dancing all over the place. It's not like there's a dance floor or dance area. It's like the whole party is a giant dance. And Elizabeth and Philip are sitting on a sofa and he is pissed. He is remembering back when he got thrown through the ringer for wanting to marry Elizabeth. When he was a prince from a royal house, his great-great-grandmother was Queen Victoria, and he wasn't good enough, but this guy is coming in, and it's a reason to celebrate. It's a victory. He's so mad. I don't blame him in that regard, but he's really old manning it on that sofa. Yeah, he literally cannot believe what, and I'm not even saying who, what is in this room, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he refers to Tony's father as a common lawyer who ran off with an airline stewardess, and I think he is blaming Queen Elizabeth for maybe overcorrecting after the Peter Townsend thing, like, now you're just letting riffraff in here, honestly. He calls it pathetic and leaves. Well, I don't know. I think he has the power to be more snooty than he gives himself credit for. <laughs> Maybe. Another thing I always think is funny in movies, just as a little side note, is when people are in fancy clothes and they're like getting down to the boogie, boogie, woogie, get down. You know what I mean? It's so hilarious. And I'm sure we all do it at weddings, but it really does kind of look funny. 
<laughs> it does. I started early in life. I, like my first weddings of my friends, I refused to be photographed dancing. Oh. You look stupid. You're like all awkward. It's like that Elaine dance. Oh, and no. I felt. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. That's how I dance. So I don't want any uh, photographic proof. <laughs> well, so Prince Philip has stormed off. He has had it with the riffraff and he's out probably to go have some drinks. I don't blame him. And then <laughs> Queen Elizabeth, I just want you to know that under this conversation right here that Queen Elizabeth is currently about to have, the Queen Mom is organizing a conga line. So listen for the background words okay that's all i'm saying but on the top in front in our ears queen elizabeth asks michael Adine to investigate tony yeah she doesn't actually use the words mm -hmm. she's just kind of like dancing around it but he knows exactly what she's talking about she actually puts it this way if there was anything one ought to know about Mr. Armstrong Jones, it's better to know sooner rather than later. And then she like gives him the pointed stare. Uh-huh. You know, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Uh -huh. <laughs> and you know what Aideen takes that as? Call Tommy Lassels. That's right. <laughs> Before we go to the next scene, I just, I don't understand why... Tony flips the queen mom's skirts up other than to mock her and amuse his friends. Is there That's... another reason he might be doing that? No, there's no other reason. But mm. the queen mom is the only one that's rolling with this party. She loves the heck out of this party. I don't know if she has the common touch or whatnot, but she, for a person that spends her freaking life in front of the TV, loves this party. In real life, this scene is kind of based on a real life situation. It wasn't at the engagement party, but the queen mom did start a conga line at a party at Clarence house around the time of the actual engagement. So they went up the stairs of Clarence house doing a conga line, like in real life. I love that image so much. My favorite image of her is so much later. She is um, standing at a bar in her fancy hat, drinking a giant glass of beer in a place. Like, she's gone to a pub. She does come out of her shell. You know, we know from later, Queen Mama is a beloved figure of the royal family. And it might just be stuff like this where she just, you know what? Let me get down. I don't care. And you know, women, we get to a certain age and we don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when we talked about Jane Austen and she's like, thank goodness I'm 30 so I can sit by the fire and make people bring me wine. <laughs> so maybe we all get there. It's now the harsh light of day and Tommy Lassels comes in like he always does. He's carrying a briefcase. He's walking with importance. Michael meets him in the hallway and they go in and meet with Elizabeth. For someone who always has the right words, he's kind of tripping up on himself with this one because he just doesn't know how to phrase it. He gives her kind of a disclaimer. I hope your majesty understands the context in which this discreet reconnaissance work was done and it in no way represents a prurient, moralistic, or censorious position. Did I pronounce those words right? <laughs> 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 I had to look that up. Purient, having or encouraging excessive interest in sexual matters. Censorious, severely critical of others. Well, he says that Mr. Armstrong Jones, certainly in his private life, may live how he wishes. And Adine's like, <clears throat> I don't know if I'd go that far. But, you know, Adine's not going to contradict Lassels. I wanted to see steam coming out of that briefcase. <laughs> or a tick, 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 tick. <laughs> Yeah. 
Lassel's, let's just say, during this scene is trying to say it without saying it. So he starts at level one to see if she will understand him. As with many artists, the conventional approach to life doesn't appear to fit. And then there's a pause for the crickets. (laughs) So he tries again. The narrow path, the Christian path, the straight path is not to his taste. And she's just looking like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So maybe pictures are going to help. And he goes on to tell Elizabeth that Tony is in at least three other intimate relationships. And he puts the pictures of the women right in front of her. She's clearly going to get it now, right? (laughs) So first, of course, is Jackie Chan, who he refers to as an oriental dancer. And then it's Gina Ward, who he calls an actress. Now, she's the niece of an earl and an actress, but I'm just going to clarify that. And then he says Robin Banks, his former assistant. He lays these pictures out like cards on the table. Dean gives it a try. He says these we should add. And then he like stumbles. He doesn't know what he can say. So Tommy finishes it for him. And he says are just the natural ones. Well, and I have to say the three ladies watch her. That has already blown Elizabeth's mind. They (laughs) could have stopped here for the same effect. They could have left it. I think, determined to push through to the darker things, darker, I say, from their perspective, but she's short-circuiting. Um, <laughs> so I love the bravery of a Dean. He tries to say a sentence and then breaks down while Lassels is about to have a giant seizure. <laughs> but there's still crickets. What do you mean by natural ones? We don't understand what this is. So it's Mr. Armstrong Jones is with Mr. Fry. And then Adeen helpfully says, and Mr. Fry's wife, Camilla, who's now expecting herself. The fact that Elizabeth can get words out after that is amazing. So she's asked for a picture of Camilla and they produce one out of the briefcase. And it's clear that Elizabeth recognizes her from the party. Uh-oh, SpaghettiO. Queen Elizabeth goes into labor. I guess this was too much for her to handle. Elizabeth gets up and walks to the window because, you know, she likes to look out the window (laughs) when she's thinking of things. And we see the window from the outside, the curtains and her hand just slamming against them in a cry of pain. Like, oh, oh. Titanic style. Last time you see a hand slap a window, Leonardo DiCaprio was involved. No such (laughs) luck here. We see the medical professionals arriving. She did, of course, have doctors, but there were also a large contingent of midwives. And there's a very pregnant Elizabeth laying on her bed with her belly exposed. She's under these huge portraits that are on the wall of her mother and her grandmothers, which I thought was very sweet. You know, this is like the birthing room. It is. Although I'm always concerned about what happens to the bed. I don't know. They throw the mattress away. They burn it in a big fireplace. I don't know. How could you ever reuse the mattress after? You could, I suppose, if you put, you know, a pad down on it, a rubber plastic pad. Wouldn't they have had those back then? I guess so. I don't know. The future's plastics, right? (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Although I noticed that their doctor is using a very old version of a stethoscope. The modern, what do you call it, bi-oral, the two-eared stethoscope has already been invented, so he's still using the old school one. I don't know. I thought that was curious. But the men agree to notify the home secretary. This is the definition I found. A cabinet position responsible for internal affairs of England and Wales. Theresa May actually held this position. And so 
There are now three intricate scenes pretty much woven together like a braid. Prince Philip is playing squash. I tried to decide if it was squash or racquetball, and I think it's squash. Queen Elizabeth is given a shot, and the cabinet says a prayer for her safe delivery. I do believe it was squash. He's just playing with his pal, Jim, who, did you figure out who he was? Of course, that's James Orr. That is his new private secretary and Mike Parker's replacement. (laughs) It starts off just kind of competitive, but as the game goes on, it gets more, I want to say, violent. He's going at it and he's not doing very well. Philip is losing this game. He's sweating a lot. He's moaning a lot, but he's not playing his best squash. (laughs) I'm always surprised that squash players and racquetball players don't wear face masks. Those balls are going like 140 miles an hour. Could you not end up knocking teeth out of your head? Um, I, I have never played squash. I've played racquetball quite a bit, and they're very squishy balls. <laughs> but if I were to put one in a cannon and shoot you in the face yes. at 140 miles an hour. It would hurt. <laughs> yes. Okay, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> You're such a such a protective mom. <laughs> Shouldn't you have some face gear on? Oh no, Philip. I actually am kind of medium concerned about the smell in there too. Like a closed room and all that sweat. I just don't know if I feel comfortable with that. Oh, it's it's bad. You know, you're in there. It's like the frog in the water thing. You don't really notice it until you you know, leave. <laughs> and then they turn on the hood and suck all the air out of there. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice if they actually didn't know. <laughs> While this squash game is going on, Elizabeth, who's just laying in bed waiting for people to do things to her, is given a shot of twilight sleep. They're going to knock her out. That's what they did to women back then. Queen Victoria herself used chloroform as a type of anesthetic. So it's advanced a little bit, but at this time, it's still morphine and scoplamine. Which is nightshade. That's right. You experience the childbirth you feel nothing because of the morphine and you don't remember a thing here's the thing about the morphine though and i don't know if ladies who have had children can weigh in i had an emergency c-section which i highly recommend so i have no way to speak toward this at all but i imagine morphine is like peeing into a forest fire at certain points during the delivery now that said Twilight sleep was very controversial. Twilight sleep will make you forget something happened, but it won't make you not feel the delivery. I mean, women's heads were often wrapped in towels because they would bang their heads against the wall. They would scream. They had to be restrained to the bed. They would claw themselves. I mean, they were feeling the pain. They just couldn't remember it after. It was kind of a temporary amnesia. So I guess the medical professionals are thinking, if no one remembers what just happened, did it happen? It's kind of sick. And I'm very glad they didn't go into it. Yeah, they filmed it very tastefully because you really didn't see much. It's all white and pretty. (laughs) We don't have to see any of the bad stuff. They stopped using that, though, because the drugs crossed through the placenta and the babies were born drugged. I think that's when they started slapping you on the booty. Mm-hmm. To wake you up from twilight yep. sleep. Yeah. It was bad. <laughs> it was actually, though, it was used until the early 1970s, which shocked me. My mom had it. I know that oh. for our births. I don't know anything about that. I should probably ask my mom. I was very disturbed during this scene to see those forceps. And I'm thinking, I don't know how this works. Now, we are led to believe no one pushed. 
But right. the explanation of Twilight Sleep seemed to be that everything happened as usual. People strained and pushed and screamed and that kind of thing. It's just that you didn't remember it. But we are led to believe during the filming of The Crown that they reached in and hauled his Alec right out of there with those forceps. I think forceps were commonly used when they used Twilight Sleep. You know, I, now I'm not sure if they used forceps more back then than they do now. Um, but it was a pretty common procedure to use. I had them with my first daughter. Well, like I said, I don't know anything about it. I had the ultimate Twilight Sleep. Highly recommend. Okay. Um, well, we do hear the baby cry, which I was really, I mean, I know. I know who it is. I know he makes it. I've seen him as a grown man. But still in the moment, I was like, oh, no, I hope he's okay. We do hear him cry. We see the nurse. What a good baby. What a good baby. The third thing we see is at 10 Downing Street, all the men are around the table and they're very excited because they're told that the queen is in labor or birth is imminent. And Macmillan has this like grandfatherly smile on his face like, oh, this is great. Let's say a prayer. And he leads them in a prayer. It's very sweet. I kind of like the way that they were doing this. Like people who were not in the family were off thinking about it. You know, Macmillan and the boys. Elizabeth is in the heat of the moment, but it's all curtains and white and billowy. Like, childbirth is lovely. And then poor Philip is in this dark squash court, just sweating and groaning. <laughs> he probably hurt more than she did. <laughs> now, we do see Prince Philip smoking a cigar, like Papa's did in the 60s and 50s. And he's listening to the baby announcement on the radio and planes fly overhead in salute. Exciting. It was February 19th, 1960, when Andrew, the Duke of York, was born. He was second in line to the throne. He weighed seven pounds, three ounces. The radio show that Philip is listening to is talking about the fanfare that's going to go on. And there's huge crowds gathered below, excited to hear about the birth of this baby. It's a very big deal. I love that. And I think there might be a similar, I don't know if they fly over every time. We're going to watch because it's a very analogous situation. There will be a third child born sometime around Easter. Let's call it April 1st. And that's not an April Fool's joke. We're going to get to see if there's a flyover or what kind of gun salute there is. You know that the crowds gather. That's pretty well documented. And the reporters gather sometimes a month ahead of time. <laughs> Jeez. Well, Princess Margaret arrives to see her new nephew and Queen Elizabeth tries to talk her out of marrying Tony. And I'm sorry to say the sisters fight. They do. Margaret seems genuinely happy to see the baby. She walks over as soon as she goes into the room and looks at the baby and kind of, you know, Licks his cheek. I don't know what she did. She reached into <gasps> the bed. I don't know. Did she like touch his cheek? Because they're oh, so I soft. Thought you, I thought you said he. She licks his <laughs> cheek, and I'm like, <laughs> what kind of freaking? I. She has been around Tony too much. <laughs> okay, I'm with you now. I was just okay. like. I don't get that at all. Okay. She asked, <laughs> she asked her sister if they've named the baby, and so we hear the story of how they came to the name. Elizabeth says, first they thought of George, but there's too many of them, and no one could equal Papa. Oh, the second was Louis, but it's too foreign, Margaret says. Like, she knew that, that why that wouldn't go. So they decided on Andrew after Philip's father. And Margaret is back in form. She says, oh, the bankrupt philanderer? And Elizabeth says, Philip's father. So... That was enough talk about the baby. She just jumped right in. The baby's here. Could we announce the engagement? 
Let's do it. And again, Elizabeth puts a roadblock. She says, before you announce it, are you sure Tony's the right man? Through this next little speech, she ramps it up a little bit. The basic premise is that Princess Margaret is just grabbing hold of a rebound. Princess Margaret's position is that Queen Elizabeth caused her the original pain in the first place. Margaret, you know, she digs her heels in. And if you don't know any of this story, she kind of sounds like she's going in with her eyes wide open and she's a very normal, excited bride. The words that she's using sound like there's nothing dark about this marriage. She says, Tony is no revenge. Tony is a free choice. Reason to hope and dream. She gets kind of flowery. Right. (laughs) But Elizabeth keeps trying to interrupt her and saying, you know, she reminds Margaret that Tony is a complicated man. I wonder if she's taking lessons from Lassels, carefully choosing her words. (laughs) He's a complicated man with a complicated past and a complicated presence. But she's just kind of tap dancing around. And eventually Margaret says, well, what do you know? Which gave Elizabeth the opportunity to say something, anything, but she doesn't. I wonder why Queen Elizabeth just doesn't tell her. Like, why does she just play it off as plain old sisterly concern? Because that is making Princess Margaret mad again. (laughs) Well, she doesn't tell her because it's going to be her stopping the marriage. And she said she supported it Mm. and that Margaret has to come to it on her own and cancel it. But she can't. She can't. She promised her sister. And this time she knows she has to go through. And she just says that she wants to make sure that Margaret makes sure Tony is the right man for her. What I would do if I were her. Yes, I would let this roll. Literally have Lassels deliver the dossier or (laughs) alternately. Mail the freaking thing anonymously to Princess Margaret's house. Because I almost think you're doing her a disservice now by not telling her the full picture. After which she may make the same choice. That's, I don't know if it's fine according to Queen Elizabeth, but at least she's going in with all the information. By withholding an entire investigation, to me... It almost seems like you're, like Philip said earlier, you're bending too far backwards the other way. Oh, I think in this situation, she has to. She might have to, but I think she could easily have someone else simply provide her that information with no, what did he put it, like moral outrage or judgment or whatever. I almost Mm -hmm. think she needs to be informed of what the situation is currently. Past is past. You can forgive it or not forgive it. Even the present, as long as you know what it is, you can accept it or reject it. But Princess Margaret is not even given the option to. I just feel like it's a little bit of a disservice. I don't know. I don't know. I wondered what Elizabeth thought Margaret already knew. She's been spending a lot of time with Tony. Oh, like if Princess Margaret was part of the package. Like Mm -hmm. if she knew, quote, knew Mr. Fry herself and Mrs. Fry. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. I can see why that would be something like, let's not even la 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 la. I don't want to know. I guess I can buy that. Yep. I can buy that. Well, not even la la la. I don't want to know, but that would infuriate Margaret even more because she would know that Elizabeth was snooping around trying to get info. Oh, I already knew that. And now I know that you want to go behind my back. Got it. And betray me. I never even thought about that. Now, of course, Queen Elizabeth has no idea that Princess Margaret doesn't know that thing. But I see what you're saying. Okay, I'm buying that. Okay, good answer. Good answer. All right. So Princess Margaret says the line that we have heard so long ago in the season two trailer. 
I know who I am and what I represent. A woman in my own right, a woman for the modern age, and above all, a woman who is free to live, to love, and free to break away. So that is like a mission statement. <laughs> she should get that cross-stitched on a pillow. <laughs> well, two pillows. It's pretty long. <laughs> Margaret gives her speech, but Elizabeth can't let it go. And she says, you could have given it up to be free, but you like it too much. And I think it was kind of insulting. It was an implication that, no, you love rank and deference more than you loved Peter Townsend. So don't give me that breakaway. I think mm -hmm. it's pretty insulting. I mean, I think it's true. But <laughs> I also think it is not necessary to go there. And I think there's a little bit of jealousy in her speech because Elizabeth says, I just wanted to give it up and become invisible. So she wanted what Margaret had. Right. Of course, Margaret, she still has to get the last word. And she says, congratulations, you've managed to become invisible while wearing the crown. See you at the Abbey. They are so ugly and hateful to each other. And that <laughs> smile at the end when she says, I'll see you in the Abbey is kind of scary. Like triumphant kind of like she's learning bad habits from Tony in so, real life they did announce their engagement six days after Andrew was born it took six days I think this Princess Margaret is probably headed to the newspaper office from here <laughs> I think so. so there's a whole bunch of scenes of people getting ready for the wedding um in no particular order Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip the Queen Mum, Princess Anne which took me a minute to see who it was uh, Prince Charles, Michael Edeen, Lassels, Mrs. Fry and her giant tummy, and Mr. Fry. <laughs> Who doesn't have a giant tummy, but he just looks like defeated. <laughs> the voiceover is of TVs or radios reporting on the wedding day because it is huge news. This was the first royal wedding to be televised ever. And there mm. are 300 million TV viewers tuned in right now. I guess she did eclipse Elizabeth, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. There's these really cool shots, like really close-ups. First, they do all the women's shoes. The women are all putting their feet into their own shoes, and all you see is their feet. And then Philip's putting his shoes on, and then they get necklaces on. And they're just these close-ups that you can't really see who the person is, but you can kind of figure it out. Well, and then I wrote, Anne does not look happy. And then I went, wait, Prince Charles does not look happy. And so I just rewound. So everyone else, except for Lassels, who seems perfectly satisfied, um, are kind of bumming out. And I noticed that Edine is shining his own shoes, which seems strange to me. Aren't there 90 people downstairs that could shine your shoes? Probably not as good as he could shine his own shoes. Maybe he's a control freak. Okay. <laughs> I never even thought about that. Is he considered a servant or staff? Well, honestly, even in Downton Abbey, when there aren't that many servants, the lower servants serve the upper servants. So if he's not an upper servant as private secretary to the queen, I don't know who is. It's true. He can't get a guy downstairs to a hall boy or whatever to shine his shoes. I don't know. It just seems strange <laughs> to me. Maybe they were busy. I mean, it's you know lots of stuff going on that day. <laughs> Pretty big deal. <laughs> oh, I guess so. And then I see Jackie Chan getting ready. Is she going to the wedding? And I guess so, if Mrs. Fry and her stomach are going to the wedding. I just don't know about exes going to the wedding. <laughs> I just don't know. I like the way they did that, though, because, again, these close-ups, putting on the shoes, going to the jewelry box, and then the camera goes out and you can see, oh, my gosh, it's Jackie. And isn't that a great dress? <laughs> So Princess Margaret comes down the stairs in her wedding gown to the tune of Jackie Chan's music box. This director, clever and also a sadist. 
<laughs> yeah. Yes, buddy. So we don't get a really good look at the dress right now. It's a pretty quick shot. Tony and his mother are traveling in a car to the Abbey. Tony does not look happy. He's sitting on his side and he finally looks over and we see that he's sitting next to his mother who does look very happy. She's actually able to use the royal wave that she's probably been practicing her whole life <laughs> out the window. And, and he's just like, I can't believe I'm here. And she's looking like this is the best day of my life. She seems <laughs> satisfied more than excited, I think. I've received my due at last. That's right. Yeah. So there is a wordless scene here between Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth in this dress I can't even talk about. I'm going to let you talk about it because I can't even I can't even say anything because if you can't say something nice, you should say nothing at all. So I'm going to simply say Prince Philip and Elizabeth are staring at each other up in their suite. <laughs> she looks like um, she feels, I think, uncomfortable. Like a blue lace pillowcase? <laughs> Is that what she's feeling? <laughs> it's really bad. And they both kind of sigh at each other. There's no words. There's nothing to say. They're just not happy. If I were to guess, his whole demeanor suggests that he is still blaming Elizabeth for letting things get this far in the first place. Although it's too late now. Now, Princess Margaret comes out to Philip, who is taking her to the church and also down the aisle in place of her father. I know. It's so lovely. It's a beautiful day in May. He's waiting outside by her carriage, and she steps out It's from the side, so you see the silhouette of her dress, and it's gorgeous. And he goes to her and takes her arm, and he says, your father would have been proud. So he has done the right thing as brother-in-law, Slash stand-in father. He has put aside his peak from upstairs and he is nothing but supportive now. So that is growth from Philip. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe, but I, I found myself very touched by his behavior here. And I think he's always liked Margaret. So, I do too. Yeah. So um, her dress, we finally get a good look at her dress. Um, it is by the same designer who had done Elizabeth's. Although Princess Margaret did not have to come up with ration coupons for hers. <laughs> it's by Hartnell or Hartnell. I don't know how to say it. It is very simple, but there are 30 yards of fabric in the skirt. I can imagine how heavy that is. And how do you pee with 30 yards of fabric in your skirt? <laughs> you don't. <laughs> I saw the coolest thing, by the way, and it's marketed to brides. I don't even know if it's a real thing. It's kind of like a the first petticoat you put on, and it has these like blue suspenders mm -hmm. attached to it. And I think the plan is that you're the bride and you have to go pee pee. So you go in the bathroom and you look for the blue straps, which should be obvious, and you pull them to your shoulders and... That petticoat is stretchy and it expands to envelope the rest of your skirts while you do your business. Wow. I might look for a link or whatever, but I have passed that on to every bridal person I know. I'm like, I don't know if that exists, but if it doesn't, you should sew them because you would make a lot of money. No kid. Where do you think you saw it? I have no idea. Where do I see anything? I see random facts everywhere and they lodge <laughs> and they just sit until I am ready to use them. And it was a video. I saw it in motion. It was probably one of those videos that you see in the middle of your Facebook feed. Uh -huh. Like, you know, look at this 
floating hammock or you know solar <laughs> flashlight or whatever you know have um, you ever bought anything from those i did i bought a um, knitted hat that has bluetooth speakers embedded at the temples so that you hear it through your bones in your head oh i got the same hat for uh, noah yeah. <laughs> for christmas yeah i guess i must look for things i don't know you know they read your algorithms from st- places yeah. you go and stuff i wonder what algorithm sends me to pp suspenders <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little alarmed about that. I must delete my search history. Oh, scary. Okay, let's get back to something a little more refined, which is that tiara. Oh, yes. It's the Baltimore tiara. And it was either, there's not any uh, agreement on this. It was either purchased by Margaret herself, or it was selected and paid for by either the queen or um, the queen mom. Either way, it's a new piece of jewelry to the family for this wedding, it's a very old piece of jewelry. It was made in Florence, Italy for Lady Poltimore in the 1870s. So all these tiaras have such history to them. This is my favorite part of this whole thing is going and learning about the tiaras. Well, and okay, so the carriage evidently is the glass coach only used on state occasions. We never see him, but I just wanted to clarify a situation earlier they referred to Mr. Fry having been Tony's selection for his best man. Well, in between that moment and the wedding day, Mr. Fry got dinged with a ticket for inappropriate behavior with a man. Um, I think it was like a two pound ticket. So it's not financially very onerous, but his reputation, therefore, was out in the public record, and they thought it would be better if he chose someone else. The person he chose, or was chosen for him, I would like to know, was the son of the Queen's gynecologist. I mean, he was a neurologist himself. He was a doctor, Dr. Roger <laughs> Gilead. But I'm just saying he had curious ties to the family, so I'm not entirely sure if it was Tony's selection. Well, his mother, of course, wanted him to choose that ranked brother, the heir, You know, her first, Mm -hmm. quote, real son. And I can imagine the curse words that came out of his mouth. No, she was not very much nicer to the, quote, real sons. So it's not their fault. And there is a lovely picture of them. I'm going to put on the Pinterest board of both of those brothers in top hats. And they're both very attractive young men. But nevertheless, they were invited to the wedding, but they were not in the wedding party. I would like to tell you a real life anecdote. So Margaret comes out and the servants are all lined up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you think, oh, that's really nice. They're coming to wish her well. Evidently, in real life, the steward of her house said, goodbye, your highness. And one of the footmen, under his breath, she didn't hear, but the servants heard. So how under the breath is that? I don't know. Meant for people to hear it said, we hope forever. <laughs> They're getting tired of cleaning up all the glass shards. (laughs) I'm just saying she has burnt every bridge with those people. And I am not entirely sure because after her marriage, they moved to a different place. I am not entirely sure that more than maybe one or two of those people came with her. I think they all were like, Halla freaking Luya. (laughs) And of course, it was still the Queen Mom's house. So really, most of them stayed with her and stayed with the house. Away from Margaret. Free at last. There are scenes of Princess Margaret traveling to the church in her carriage, intercut on a TV, so clever, with actual archival footage. It was so clever. I love that about this episode. And Margaret just looks so happy. I mean, she doesn't look like 
<laughs> she doesn't look like Tony's mom, like this is all my due. She looks like a bride. She looks excited and happy. She's looking out the window of the carriage at the crowds and just waving at them with this huge smile that I haven't seen on this show. Have you seen her smile like that? I don't know if it is the realization that there are so many people that love her. Oh, they're all here for her. And I remember feeling very surreal on my wedding day. And, you know, it was a very relatively small wedding. But I remember feeling that notion of being the prime mover in the whole day's activities. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if finally she was kind of feeling a little bit of joy. Like, they like me. They really like me. Well, or as Queen Elizabeth said to her, you enjoy the rank and deference too much. And this is like the ultimate deference. Everybody <laughs> has put aside whatever they were supposed to do that day and has rushed down to line the streets to see her go by in about seven seconds from their mm -hmm. vantage point. They're willing to give up their whole day just to be, to say they've been there on her big day. You know, I think that's a big deal. No, it's a very big deal. And I feel bad for the people that got Philip's side of the carriage because they just got Philip, where the other side got her waving at them and smiling and just looking so joyful. <laughs> Even I, the extrovert, was not comfortable with the attention on my wedding day. But Margaret seems to be very comfortable with it. Actually, the real Margaret was very comfortable with it. The tiara that she did wear, it's very tall and... Um, I had read somewhere that it took a certain personality to carry it off. And Margaret wasn't very tall. I think she's 5'1". But um, because of her personality, you know, she could carry off this this tiara. So With heels and the tiara, she could have made it to 5'7". <laughs> no. You know that tiara she's wearing? There's a portrait that uh, Tony takes of her later in life, not a few years down the road, where she's in a bathtub and... She's got her hair in an updo and she has that tiara on. She's got this big smile on her face and you can see his foot like in the reflection of the mirror behind her. It's really cute. <laughs> Tony is in the car with his mom and they have a conversation for the ages. <sighs> it was kind of a quiet car ride up to this point and he asked her if She's proud of him and that the whole situation, you know, his marrying into the royal family isn't too bad for a son that brought you shame. You rejected and was never good enough. And then there's just radio silence, like no response, no. which is I don't know what he expected her to say. Like, you're so right. and so glad you wrote honor on this family. There was nothing. And so he goes on, you know. I just feel bad for the four, five, six, seven, all the way up to 30-year-old Tony, who has tried for his whole life to make his mother love him and gets this piece of ice. I just, oh, kills me. He says, I suppose I always thought that eventually you'd find it in you to admit that you're proud of me, even that you love me. And the pain is so on the surface, he's not even bothering to hide it from her. And of course, she reacts properly sarcasm and says darling i hope you didn't do all this for me she sounds impatient and they both have weird looks on their faces what even is that look wacko family face <laughs> i don't know so we do hear the classic wedding service over people arriving doors opening people's faces etc but we never do go inside with the bride and the groom but we don't have to we know what westminster abbey looks like right <laughs> in the 
voiceover is the actual wedding. It's the real Tony and the real Margaret's wedding. It's not these actors. They did that great in this episode, weaving, you know, archival footage into the episode in clever ways. And this is another one. So it starts, Antony, Charles, Robert, wilt thou have this woman to your wedded wife? That's how it begins. Antony looks at Westminster Abbey like it is a prison. (laughs) Princess Margaret is looking at the crowd as if she was living in a beautiful dream. So we're already a little bit concerned about their states of mind not matching on their wedding day. (laughs) Now, um, right before the end of this episode, there are bells again. And I don't know if it's the same bells, and I am 100% sure it was not an accident that we opened with bells during the frontal and we closed with bells during the blackout. So the screen fades to black and Margaret says the words, I will. At the beginning, we went from up in the sky to down in the apartment. And here we went from down at the street level to up above the Abbey with the bells ringing. It's like the beginning scene, except in reverse. Well, that's the end of this episode. I... Woo! Okay, we learned a lot, um, mostly about Tony. The undercurrents here are very disturbing with Mm -hmm. this relationship, this Tony and Margaret relationship, just these revelations. (laughs) Man, they are definitely painting the motivations very clearly from each side, and that was a masterful weaving together of those stories. Oh, I agree. And there's a big difference between, you know, pulling back the curtain, which they do a lot in a lot of these episodes, and... Uh, actually going into the room and into bed. (laughs) So that's the difference here. It's not just peeking through the curtain to see the real family. It's like getting down in the messy, dirty parts of the family. And I don't mean that. Well, I guess I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I guess one more of our future threads have come true with the birth of Andrew. Um, We are back on the train. We knew it was going to be 10 years before a child was born. So we're there. We are definitely seeing a contrast between the behavior of, call them the senior royals and the junior branch of the family and their demeanor and their attitude toward the world. I'm looking forward, but I know it's got to be season three, to what happens with this relationship between Tony and Margaret. There wasn't a whole lot of Queen Elizabeth development except for, you know, the baby and kind of just showing how the relationship is becoming kind of solid, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Like they're coalescing on a side. He complains that, the you know, the world is changing, but he is kind of realizing that he and Elizabeth are on one side of the dividing line in society and that Princess Margaret and her friends are on the other side, kind of. Mm-hmm. Also in this episode, when we were watching Charles and Anne get dressed, they spent, a, I mean, I've seen all the episodes now, so I'm foreshadowing, but they spent a lot of time on Charles. They were right up watching the discomfort on his face. Oh, I'm sure there's going to be some more dysfunction revealed. Oh, yeah. All right. So we're looking forward to the Charles and Philip relationship. And I mean, we're still lots away. And I'm hoping we make it into season three. But like, I am so looking forward to Princess Diana. I can hardly stand it. I am. But I really like going back. It's kind of like when Mad Men started and it was back far enough that it looked, it was life that I had not known. Ah. So, um, once it got to life that I recognized, it lost a lot of its charm. I see. So, you know, when they start wearing the 80s clothes and stuff, I, I'm going to feel differently about it, I think. I'm excited for it, and but I can wait. There's another dimension to it when you look at history and realize that you lived then. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so I am not going to pepper this with a whole bunch of links. Rather than pepper them through here, there is a page on Tune Find that will tell you and let you hear all the songs in this episode. So we'll just link you directly to this episode, which was a very music-heavy episode. Also from the Daily Mail, the real story, quote, real story, <laughs> of why Princess Margaret married Tony. Interesting. And then <laughs> that blog I referred to, the other side of growing up with, they didn't call her Duckface, but I will, Duckface, <laughs> Tony's little brother, as a grown man, talks to a reporter about his childhood. I didn't stumble across that last one, so I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, I have some links to the Gazelli Art House. So if you're in London, you can go there. Um, Gretna Green, if you're ready to run away and get married, I can link you up to all that you need to know. <laughs> well, that will do it for Season 2, Episode 7 of The Crown. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Do you know anyone who watches The Crown? Spread the word about the recapery, won't you? And tell a few friends. Also, we've got a Pinterest board set up at The Recapery for Season 2. If you'd like even more rabbit holes to travel down, just head on over there. And most importantly, don't miss our original podcast, The History Chicks, where we tell you the stories of women throughout history as only we can. See you next time. Oh, Helena Bonham Carter. I My hands are clasped in joy under my chin with the very thought of you. Um, come on the show, would you? Yeah, just in case you hear this. <laughs> uh, 